today we're continuing our survey through the Bible. And as we are making our way through this survey, we come to the books of uh, Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. So I've got a question to start off with. How many of you have started a read-through-the-Bible program, and you got to First Chronicles, and you were done? Nine chapters of genealogy was about as much as you could handle of God's wonderful grace. Um, I want to give you a perspective on First uh, and Second Chronicles, which, which fit together. And I'm going to give you a perspective on it that will help you see why they do what they do and the real wonderful, encouraging message that comes out of that. Okay, so to do that, I'm going to set some background. And um, this is the arrangement of our books in the New Testament. We have uh, 17 historical books, five poetical books, and then 17 prophetic books. That's how we've arranged them in, in the English Bible. The books that we've covered so far... Um, in the historical books, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, those all fit together, and they are called the Deuteronomistic history. I don't need you to remember that name, but it's a history that, that really is framed from the perspective of faithfulness to Deuteronomy. If you remember, um, the Israelites were, were brought out of their captivity in Egypt. Um, they received the plans for the tabernacle and its worship, uh, they wandered in the wilderness for about 40 years before God, uh, so because they didn't trust God to go into the land. After that 40 years, they camped on the plains of Moab, and Moses preached four sermons that we know of as the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is these four sermons that he preaches before they go into the land to take it over under Joshua. And those four sermons in Deuteronomy are framed as a treaty. They are framed exactly like an ancient Hittite treaty. And what Moses is doing is he's saying, here, before you go into the land, I need you to pledge your faithfulness to live by the law. And what they do at the end of the book is they say, we're all in. Before we go in, we will be faithful to the law. And what follows in that history is a perspective to say, did they follow what was in the law, particularly in Deuteronomy? Um, now, there's not a guy who's, who's the Deuteronomist, uh, okay? If there is a Deuteronomist, He's not some mystical guy who's doing something bad with the Word of God. If there is a Deuteronomist, if I had to identify him, I'd say he's probably Ezra. If he's not Ezra, he's one of Ezra's buddies who we don't know. If you just have to, his name is Fred. Just go with it, okay? But it's, it's not a specific person, probably. It's, it's a framework that Ezra or one of his contemporaries put on that history to show were they being faithful to the law, and they were not. And it really highlights how, listen, you, you put yourself in this situation. Now, the books we're getting ready to jump into, Chronicles today, then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther to come, they all fit together in what is called the Chronicles, Chronicler's History, okay? It's a very different perspective. This perspective is not framing it in terms of how did they follow the law it's framing it more as God was faithful to them. And it does tell the same story, but it frames it from a, what I'm calling a priestly perspective. So let me put these two things together for you for just a little bit here. Um, Danny Hayes says it this way. 
the chronicler's history, 1 Chronicles through Esther, is written from a slightly different perspective. It does not focus on explaining why the exile occurred, but rather speaks to those who have returned to the land after the exile and points to the way forward, focusing on the everlasting promises of the Davidic covenant, on establishing true and faithful worship in the temple, and on trusting God even if they remain weak and under foreign political domination. Um, This group, I'm going to frame this for you more clearly, they have come back from their exile, and they are now in the land, and they're asking, what do we do now? And, and this is what the book of the Chroniclers does for them. It answers those questions. Bruce Wilkinson puts it together this way. The book of 1 and 2 Chronicles cover the same period of Jewish history described in 2 Samuel through 2 Kings, but the perspective of Chronicles is different. These books are no mere repetition, repetition of the same material, but rather a divine editorial on the history of God's people. It's not the facts. It's not the story. It's the editorial comments on the story. He goes on to say this, While Second Samuel and Kings give a political history of Israel and Judah, Chronicles gives a religious history of the Davidic dynasty of Judah. The former were written from a prophetic and moral viewpoint, the latter from a priestly spiritual perspective. The book of 1 Chronicles begins with the royal line of David, then traces the spiritual significance of David's righteous reign. The perspective of the chronicler is much more priestly. And how were they worshiping? It's not were they obedient, it's how were they worshiping. It's not going to focus on their moral failure, but on God's faithfulness. It's an encouraging book which I think is, it's sad that everybody stops their Bible reading when they get to First Chronicles because it's like, this is where it gets encouraging. So keep reading, okay? Um, there's a contrast between these, particularly Samuel Kings and First Chronicles. Um, there, there's a, a huge contrast. It's political history rather than religious history. Um, Samuel and Kings is really the message of judgment. It is, you disobeyed, and that's why you're getting kicked out of the land. First and Second Chronicles is a message of hope that says, you were kicked out of the land, now you're back, and God is still going to be faithful. Kings, Samuel and Kings focuses on men's failure. Um, Chronicles is going to focus on God's faithfulness. Um, it's the positive message. Um, they're not ignoring, they're very aware of what is said in Samuel and Kings. They're not ignoring it, they're just framing it to highlight a very different perspective. Let me put a couple things together for you as well. If you were to walk into my office and grab my Hebrew text of the Bible, I have a Hebrew text, um, you would notice it's arranged differently. There are three sections in the Hebrew text. There's the Torah, the first five books of Moses, um, the law as we think of it. Then there is a section that is the prophets, that's called the Nevi'im, it's just the Hebrew word for prophet. And then the Kethuvim, um, it's the Hebrew word for the writings, okay? Those are the three sections that are arranged. They're arranged differently than our English Bibles, and there's a reason for that. But I want to point out something that's, that's important to understand how this all fits together. Um, in the prophetic section of my Hebrew text, Joshua Judges, Samuel, and Kings is considered part of the prophetic writings because it's the time period when all of these other prophets are going to speak, okay? So all the prophetic books, those 17 books, they fit back into this time period that's being described here. Now, let me give you one just 
short example for that in, in just a moment, uh, because what you're going to see is that the prophets take place during these, these writings. If you go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, here's what you'll read. We'll get there later, okay? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah is going to prophesy during the period of a number of these kings. These kings are going to come and go, and the prophets are going to overlap when they're speaking during that time. I'm going to point out one other thing. In my Hebrew text, um, the very last book of the Bible is Chronicles, the book we're looking at now. I mean, it's kind of in the middle of the book, uh, middle of the Old Testament for us. But it's the last book in the Hebrew Bible because it is a hopeful book. It is a book that doesn't say what Samuel and Kings way earlier said, you're getting what you deserve. It's a book at the very end that says, God is faithful and make sure worship is central in everything you do. That's what Chronicles says. And it's hopeful there at the end of the Bible. So, Let's start to look at the content. I'm calling it a priestly perspective. It's a, it's a perspective not of a historian who's giving you the facts, but a priest who's saying, what's the significance of what just happened back then? Um, Bob Chisholm says this, Overall, the historical portrait of Chronicles is more optimistic than Samuel and Kings, which highlighted the nation's moral descent and political decline. Chronicles, through its more idealized presentation of the past, is much more optimistic as it holds up key figures of the past as paradigms of the ideal leader to come, Jesus Christ. They're aware of the failures that are described in the Deuteronomistic history. They know that that happened. But they're editing it out to show God's faithfulness in the middle of it. And they're going to present some some people who we know the bad stories about, but they're not going to highlight those bad stories. When they get to David, they're going to talk about David and the good things he did and how God made a covenant with him. And God's covenant said, through you and one of, and you, one of your descendants, everything is going to be set right. And we know that that's through the first coming and eventually the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it's not going to highlight the bad things he did. Here's what we read in First and Second Samuel. We read this. When it was time for the kings to go out to war, David stayed home. While he was out, he saw Bathsheba, committed adultery, murdered her husband, and had children with them. That's a bad story. It's, it's supposed to be bad. Here's what the chronicler said. When it was time for the kings to go out to war, Israel won. And then they move on. Because he's not trying to highlight. He knows what happens, but he's trying to say the story continues and David is the path. He's not the one. So I don't have to obsess about all the bad things he did. Solomon did a lot of very bad things. But when they get to Solomon, what's going to be highlighted almost exclusively is him building the temple. Because the temple is this central place where they're worshiping. And he's trying to say the message that the temple is really what orients you back to God. Um, Danny Hayes says this, While it is important for us to acknowledge our sin, confess it, and receive forgiveness, it's also important to accept that forgiveness, put our past sin behind us, and move forward. 
First and Second Kings uh, concludes the Deuteronomy-based history and looks back at the failure of Israel and Judah to obey Deuteronomy. It explains why the terrible judgment, their exile, came. First and Second Chronicles, on the other hand, opens the chronicler's history and retells much of the same story, but with a forward-looking orientation, in essence saying, let's move on. Um, in fact, we're going to see it, it's not as clear in English, the very last words of Second Chronicles in Hebrew are an unfinished sentence, go up. It, it ends with go up. It, it, there's this almost openness of, okay, go up to where, where you can meet God. Get, get out of this um, wallowing in the sin and the bad news. Here's the good news. God has been faithful. You can worship him, so go up. The book ends in a real positive way. Um, out at the Connection Center, like always, I've got a chart on First and Second Chronicles. And the flow of the book is the first nine chapters really are genealogies. They, they are. But the idea of what he's saying is God's story, I'm connecting all the way back to Adam. This story didn't just start with Abraham or David. This story started way back with Adam. And he's going to connect Adam to the story right up through Abraham, Judah, then to David. Then he's going to jump into these stories about David, and he's going to select them to, to do positive stories about David. A lot of what David is going to do is going to be centered around, I'll show you in just a second, the Davidic covenant, but also David's preparation for the building of the temple. Solomon's going to build the temple. That's what's going to come next, Solomon building the temple. But David is going to prepare um, a lot of the collection of the Psalms that he's going to put together that eventually will become our 150 Psalms. David is instrumental in starting the collection process. David is going to organize the temple choirs and the temple services so that everything can be ready for this permanent structure to be built. And then Solomon is going to build that structure. Now, the kingdom is going to divide, like we saw back in First and Second Kings. The kingdom is going to divide, but what the chronicler is going to do is just focus on the southern kingdom of Judah. Because that's the line through whom God is going to bless and the line through whom Messiah is going to come. The, the northern kingdom is, is wiped out anyways, but they were never faithful. So God's not working through them. Now, in the David stories, right in the middle of it is this Davidic covenant. It's this covenant God makes with David to say, one of your descendants is going to be the guy who fixes it all. He's going to fix it by redeeming us at his first coming and by coming to establish his rule in our lives and in the world in his second coming. It's going to be one of the descendants of David. And my suspicion is, because of the Davidic covenant and one of the coronation psalms, Psalm 45, every time one of the kings was coronated, he, he probably for a moment was wondering, am I the guy? And it probably, if he's anything like me, took him half a day to realize, no, I'm not that guy. Um, I'm not the guy who's going to you know, perfectly lead the nation. Um, in the middle of the Solomon stories is the, is the building and the dedication of the temple. And then in the Judah section, you're going to get highlighted once again the, the revivals under Hezekiah and the revivals under Josiah. Everybody else has kind of moved through quickly, but we have extended treatments of Hezekiah and Josiah because they are pointing people back to worship in the temple. Make sure your worship is right. Hezekiah cleans out the temple. Josiah makes sure that the establishment of the temple is there. Both of them bring them back and celebrate Passover for the first time in years and years and years. 
So this is how this book flows. There's all those genealogies, but they function to say this story is an old story that God has started from the very beginning. And then it moves you through the life of David, the life of Solomon, and the southern kingdom to trace God's history, the centrality of God's promises and his faithfulness, and the centrality of the temple worship in the middle of all of that. One other thing you need to know, and this frames some of the chronology as well, is understanding the Palestinian covenant. The Palestinian covenant is seen in its shortest, most clear form, I think, in Leviticus 26. It's also in Deuteronomy 30 to 32. Right at the end of Deuteronomy, it's where uh, Moses says, here's the rules. (laughs) Are Are you good with this? And the rules are this. God's people will be blessed for their obedience, disciplined for their disobedience, and restored when they repent because God is faithful to his people. Do you guys agree to that? And in Deuteronomy, they say, yes, we agree. Now, what plays out is for a little while, they're blessed, and then they're going to be disciplined. And that discipline is going to be the captivity in Babylon for 70 years. But then they're going to repent. Daniel's going to lead a lot of that repentance. Ezra and Nehemiah lead in that repentance that allows them to come back. And then they're restored into the land. I need to highlight the particulars of the discipline. In Leviticus chapter 26, you're going to see that God escalates things. He basically says, if you start to disobey me, you're going to be defeated by your local enemies. The Ammonites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, all these local guys, they're going to defeat you. And if that doesn't get your attention, I'm going to send drought. That's why Elijah knows it's not going to rain. You guys are disobedient. It's not going to rain. And when they repent on Mount Carmel... Elijah's able to go, hey, it's going to rain. Why? Because he knows God's going to send the rains. But if they don't respond to that, he's going to send wild beasts. If that doesn't get their attention, devastation, locust plagues, um, famine. And if all that doesn't get attention, God says, you're out of here. Um, last week, it's, it's our, you guys shape up or you're going to have to ship out. And eventually, they have to get shipped out. And that's exactly what happens to them. They get shipped out. They're in captivity for 70 years, but then they repent, and the Palestinian covenant says this, confession of sins results in forgiveness and restoration, and that's what they do, and so they are restored. It's the people who are restored who are reading First and Second Chronicles. So let's talk about the original readers for just a minute. Here's the, here's the last, two, last few verses of 2 Chronicles. So when you, when you get to the end of all of this history, Adam to, to David, David and Solomon, the southern kingdom of Judah, when you get to the end of it, it's going to say to the original readers, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, about 538 BC, when he, in, when he inherits all of the problems that Babylon had, including these Jews that were taken captive, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 15, that says this, um, when you go away, it's going to be for 70 years, and then you can come back. The 70 years is because they had skipped 70 Sabbaths. Um, It's a very specific reason. I mean, it's very clear why they are gone for 70 years. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, God put me in charge, and I'm letting you go back. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord God be with him. Go up. End of book. So Cyrus is saying, you guys can go back. So the original readers are the people who went back. Now, for just a moment, I'm going to talk about some specifics that are going on. In 538, maybe 539 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus decrees that the exiled Jews he had inherited as captives when the Persians conquered the Babylonians could return to their homeland in Judah. This is the final concluding historical event mentioned in 2 Chronicles. Yet the genealogies back in the beginning in 1 and 2 Chronicles extend beyond the decree of Cyrus. The last individual in the Davidic genealogy is a man named Anani. How many of you ever heard of Anani? It's because you stopped reading through your Bible. Keep reading through your Bible. You'll get to Anani. Who was born about 445 B.C.? Thus, most scholars think that First and Second Chronicles was written in about 400 B.C. Let me put this together for you. The book ends by saying Cyrus says you can go back. But back in the genealogies, there's a number of people who are missing, who are mentioned, who are even further after that. And so whoever's writing knows these guys who have come back. So the original readers are, are years after the return. Um, the original readers, probably sometime between 500 and 400 B.C., would have returned to the land, rebuilt the temple with considerably less splendor than Solomon's temple and without the Ark of the Covenant. Um, when they rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel, when they're finished, everybody looks at it and, and the people who've seen the old temple go, well, that's disappointing. Um, I mean, the, the new people are pretty excited about it because they've, they've got a new place to worship. But if you've seen the old one, this one was really disappointing. They may have even completed the walls under Nehemiah, but opposition still continues. So they're back in the land. They've probably been there for a while, but opposition, uh, Persian rule over them. Um, maybe they can even see the Greeks coming on the, on the, uh, on, on the forefront. The, these are the people who are reading. Now, I'm going to Years and years ago, I heard this, um, this taught by Alan Ross, and as I've been working through the historical books, it seems to me it's exactly right, okay? He says this, after the exiles return from captivity, they never again fall into idolatry. They seem to have learned the lesson. They're not worshiping Moab, the, the gods of, of Moab, uh, Chemosh, and uh, and Astaroth. They're not worth, idolatry is just not an issue for them. The main issues are ritualism. They're just going through the motions without any true heart of worship and social injustice, not treating the poor and disadvantaged with respect and regard. The prophet's message throughout all of these, these times with the, with the kings, when those prophets are speaking during First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, when the prophets are, are preaching, their threefold message is this. Um, you guys are idolaters. <laughs> you are um, hypocrites. You're just going through the motions. And this doesn't have an impact in your life. You're not treating the poor and disadvantaged well. Once they go away into captivity, they come back. Idolatry doesn't seem to be an issue. And, and I guess I want to pause and just say, you may be sitting out there like me and saying, I'm not an idolater. Well, that may be true, but the question still remains, um, are we just going through the motions? Yeah, I don't worship other gods great. First of all, you probably do have other gods. Secondly, um, is this real? Is worship real for you? 
And is it having an impact on how you treat others around you who aren't quite like you? Um, let's work through the, the content of, of who wrote it, who's reading it, when are they living, where are they, and why is this written? So who composed Chronicles? The real answer, we don't know. He's, he's writing from the post-exilic community, using many sources from prophets and other historians. By the way, the Chronicle, he's kind of mentioning all these things we don't know. From the book of Jasher and what was written in the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. I mean, he, he's citing these sources that we don't have. He probably knows about Samuel and Kings, uses that, but he's citing all kinds of other sources. Um, Someone, perhaps Ezra, gathered and arranged the history of the surviving nation, tracing the origins of the Davidic dynasty all the way back to Adam through Abraham to Judah. The point here, the writers from this post-exilic community. The events covered in the book. Now, there's the events covered and the people who are reading, they're different time periods. The events covered in the books of Chronicles begin with Adam and trace the history of the Davidic dynasty from the patriarchs through the united and divided monarchy and on through the captivity and return from exile. So it's, it's a long history from Adam until um, the kingdom, Saul, David, and Solomon, and then tracing the southern kingdom as far as it goes, the exile, and then they got to come back. That's when this happened. It begins this way. Let me show you the beginning and the end, Okay. The beginning of the book is this, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalael, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's four verses, okay? It's four verses, all names. It's, it's kind of frustrating. You just go, can you give me some story? What about these guys? Um, oh, it's a little bit like in Czech Republic. Um, the, the word for ice cream, which I happen to know, surprise, the word for ice cream in Czech is zmerzlina. Zmerzlina, five consonants without a, without a vowel. Give me a, cons, give me a vowel. Just if you put a word, give me a vowel. If you're going to put these names here, give me a verb. What, what are they doing? These guys, at least they lived, but it's just name after name after name. They're going to go a little bit, and in chapter 9, you're going to read this. All Israel was listed in the genealogies recorded in the book of kings of Israel and Judah. All these, these genealogies I just gave you, they were taken captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. So I'm going to start with Adam. I'm going to get to the guys who were taken captive. That's chapter 9. So it's a bunch of names until you get to chapter 9. You're going to read in the next verses this. Now the first to resettle on their own property in their own towns were some Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. Those from Judah, from Benjamin, and from Ephraim and Manasseh who lived in Jerusalem were, and then a list of a bunch of more names. Okay. So Adam to the guys who got deported, and then from those guys to the ones who got to come back. And we're going to list their names. Anani is one of them who's probably the farthest out. Let me see if I can put this together with you a little bit. Chronology, no hand motions today, by the way. Um, we've already looked at second, first and second Samuel. And first and second Samuel cover this period of Saul, David, and, and the introduction of Solomon. Okay, um, What we looked at last week... First and Second Kings is going to cover this period of Solomon and then the division of the kingdom into the north and into the south. And the, the, the north is going to be taken captive first. They're going to be wiped out. And then the southern kingdom of Judah is going to be taken away captive. But then they're going to be allowed to, restore, re, to return. And the kingdom of Judah is going to continue when they come back. So let's zero in on this and get a few more perspectives here. Um, our books, First and Second Chronicles, they're going to cover the whole period. 
okay? They're going to cover everything from uh, 1 Samuel to 2 Kings, but it's going to tie it back to Adam. It's going to go even further back and in nine chapters give you genealogies that get you up to Saul, and then we're going to move to David, focus on David, then we're going to go to Solomon, focus on Solomon, and then we're going to focus on that southern kingdom, okay? Now, the southern kingdom is going to go into captivity for 70 years, then they're going to be allowed to come back. And when they come back, those are the people who are reading First and Second Chronicles. They're the ones who are reading it because Ezra's one of the ones who's going to bring them back. And he or one of his buddies is putting this together to say, look what God has been doing. He's still been faithful to you. My last dates thing here, okay? This is a lot of dates from the post-exilic period that I put together a number of years ago. Um, I, I want you to just pay attention to what's on the bottom, okay? On the bottom, they are in captivity for 70 years. Then in 538, they're allowed to come back, and they come back, we'll see this next week, under a guy named Sheshbazar and then another guy named Zerubbabel, who are going to bring the people back and build the temple. About halfway through building the temple, they're going to get discouraged. Um, Haggai and Zechariah are going to prophesy and say, come on, guys, God's glory is so big, and you've got your own paneled houses, finish the temple. They're going to finish the temple, and then 57 years later, Ezra's going to come back, that's the second half of Ezra, and he's going to lead a revival back there. He's going to preach the, the he's probably preaching the book of Deuteronomy to him. Um, and then 13 years later, Nehemiah's going to come back and build the walls. One quick point, I'm going to make this over and over again. If you're allowed to go back to your homeland after you've been kicked out, I don't know about you. I'm just going to confess me. I build the walls first, and then I build the temple. That's not what they do because they know where their true protection comes from. They build the temple. Now that they've got real protection from the Lord, okay, now we can build the walls. That's what they do. What I want to highlight here is that First and Second Chronicles is written to this group somewhere in here where they've come back. They almost certainly have rebuilt the temple, um, not as splendorous, and they don't have the Ark of the Covenant. That's why there's a real, when they get back, there's a real emphasis on the other sacrifices that aren't the ones that have the Ark of the Covenant inside. Um, they're going to emphasize all of that, and that is who he is speaking to, that community. So when was this composed? The book of Chronicles was composed during this post-exilic period after the exiles had returned from Babylon, providing them hope and perspective for the future. The temple had been built under Zerubbabel, perhaps even the walls under Nehemiah, but opposition remained. This is not the book that said, you're getting what you deserve. It's saying, yes, it's still tough, but there's hope because God is faithful and you have an opportunity to worship him. Where were they? The original audience was living back in the land of Israel, still under the rule of the Persians, and wondering what their future entailed. How should they live in these new circumstances, and was there any hope for the future? This book is not a you're getting what you deserved. It is there's hope for the future, because God has been faithful. He's been faithful to you all the way back from Adam, all the way till now. He's been faithful, and there's still a place for you to worship. So, where were they? Real quickly, this is going to go so fast because you've seen it before. This is the northern kingdom of Israel. This is the southern kingdom of Judah. In 722, the Assyrians who were in power, they're going to come down to the northern kingdom, and what they're going to do 
is absolutely annihilate them. They're going to be assimilated into the kingdom. The people in that northern kingdom of Israel are going to be taken and scattered to settle in all of the other places the Assyrians had conquered. And the Assyrians are going to take people from all of those other places and put them in there. That was their foreign policy of how they kept people from rising up against them. That's what happens to the northern kingdom in 722. Now, what's going to happen is in 612 at the Battle of Carchemish, the Babylonians... uh, give a decisive victory against the Assyrians, and the Babylonians are now going to be in charge of the world. By the way, everybody's fighting with Egypt. That's why, that's why this, period, this uh, Israel and Judah, that's why they're important, because they're all fighting with Egypt. The Babylonians are going to come to the southern kingdom, and they're not going to assimilate them. What they're going to do is in three waves in 605, when they probably take Daniel's, 598, when they probably take Ezekiel, 586, when they just level the city and destroy the temple and, and loot all of its stuff and take it back to Babylon. You see it a couple times. All the stuff that was in the temple shows up in some of the stories back in Babylon. They're going to take them, and all of their leaders, they're going to take captive. They set up some other rulers while they're gone, but they take all of the best rulers as captive. Now, what's going to happen following that is the Persian Empire is going to supplant the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire is not very long-lived. The Persians take over, and what the Persians are going to do is they're going to say, hey, all of you Jews, we didn't bring you here. You want to go home? Now, a couple times it is, hey, we want to go home, and the Persian emperor says, okay, you can go. And under three different returns, they're going to go back. Zerubbabel in 538 is going to bring them back and they're going to build the temple. Ezra's going to go back in 515 and lead a revival. And in 444, Nehemiah is going to go back and they're going to build the walls. That's, that's, it's this, this group that's coming back from the 70-year exile. So why was Chronicles written? Chronicles was written to show God's people that the Lord has been in control of Israel's destiny from the very beginning, tracing you all the way back to Adam, and that through the line of David, he would redeem and rule his people again. In the meantime, they're to prioritize worship. God's in control. God's got a plan, Davidic covenant, and worship God. That's why the centrality of the temple and all of the other kings, it all kind of relates to what they were doing related to the temple. So the content. How is this arranged? The how is really easy. Adam through Saul, then David, Solomon, kingdom of Judah. It's it's a real simple arrangement. A lot of genealogies that get you Adam through Saul. Stories about David that highlight all the good things he's done. In the center of that is the Davidic covenant. God's got a plan through one of his descendants to fix all the problems. Solomon's story, in the middle of it, he built a temple, dedicated it, and did a wonderful thing, and worship starts. And then the kingdom of Judah and analyzing them as to how well they are worshiping. So now what is being said? A couple of quotes. We're going to land here pretty quickly. Bruce Waltke says this. The chronicler retells Israel's history from David to the edict by Cyrus, but he writes Israel's salvation history from a different viewpoint than that of the Deuteronomist. He rhetorically adapts the history to give the nation direction probably during the early post-exilic period. He does so mostly by giving biographies of Israel's kings as examples. From his selection, arrangement, and integration of his sources, not by invention of material, he's not making this up, he's, he's getting real stories, um, it can be inferred that, unlike the Deuteronomist, he does not write his history to accuse the exiles of breaking covenant. 
Rather, the chronicler aims to answer burning questions of the returnees after the dislocation of exile in return. Who inherits the, the covenants? We've blown it. Is there a future for us? Folks, these are encouraging books. He goes on to say, after all their misfortune and, and their still being in subjection to the Persian emperor and their being without a king, is God still with them? Are they old institutions of kingship and temple to be restored? If so, what's the relationship to one another? Before the temple was a royal chapel. The king was very involved in it. But what is the function without a king? We've come back and we don't have a king anymore. How can they prevent their misfortune from happening again? How they prevent their misfortune from happening again is putting their hope in the Davidic promises of a coming Messiah and keeping worship central. The way I try to frame it on my chart out there is this. The author, perhaps Ezra, traced the history of the Davidic dynasty, positively highlighting the priesthood and the construction, dedication, and worship of the temple, as well as maintaining an emphasis on the Davidic covenant, in order to encourage the nation returning from exile to return to true worship and spiritual national unity and to show their unique position before the Almighty God as they anticipate the future fulfillment of the covenant in a glorious coming Messiah. You're God's people. He's being faithful to you. Be faithful to him so that God, the world can see, yes, these are God's people. This is how they live. So what do we do with all that? Okay. Uh, Danny Hayes says this, First and Second Chronicles teach us that even if we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we should grasp God's promises and continue to worship him wholeheartedly. Likewise, if we mess up and sin, the Deuteronomistic history, then we should humble ourselves and repent. We should then claim God's forgiveness and move on in life, putting our sinful past behind us. Boy, if you need this message, yes, you have probably made mistakes and you're suffering some consequences from them. But God will forgive you and be with you, and he's got a plan for you into the future. So, what should we believe? God keeps his promises. He really does. <laughs> promises to discipline, but also promises to forgive and restore and continue his story using us. God doesn't abandon his people. Our hope is in a coming perfect king. I mean, this, these failures of, of, of Moses and Joshua and the judges... And all of the kings, the failure points us to the anticipation of the perfect king, King Jesus. And while we wait for God's promises to be fulfilled, worship is central. God's going to make a, he's made the promise through David. And through Solomon, there was a temple. These things are highlighted. How should we behave? Focus on what God has already done to demonstrate his faithfulness to you. As they look back, they're looking back not to see all the stuff they did wrong. They look all the way back to Adam to say, look how God has been faithful. And I'm telling you, look at what God has done to be faithful to you. And that's at least what he did in the first coming, sending his son to die um, in your place. And hope for what God has yet to do. In the second coming, he's going to come back and set everything right and wipe every tear away. And as we're waiting in between the two comings, make worship a central part of your life. So how does this fit in the big picture of, of Scripture? Well, it's an optimistic picture of the future for God's people. And it's a warning that says if idolatry is not an issue, ritualism is its evil twin that comes in right behind it. It's a clear reminder that our hope is for Jesus Christ and all he accomplishes. And it's a constant call to keep true worship at the center of our lives. So what are some 
next steps. I, I want to give something very, very practical to you. List 10 ways God's faith, been faithful to you, his child. List 10 ways. And they may be kind of biblical ways. He sent his son, he provided a way, he laid his life down for us, but it may be very specific ways. God's given me an amazing wife. What a great provision I have got. How, how has God in other specific ways been faithful to you, his child? This book calls us to say, yes, all the bad stuff happens. We make all those mistakes, but God is faithful. And then I want you to share your list with somebody. Maybe it's in your home church. We may do that tonight at our home church. <laughs> share your list of here's 10 ways. Somebody caught me in the atrium um, after the service and said, I've got 10 ways and there's another 90 coming. When I think of how many ways God's been faithful to me. And since God's been faithful, do whatever is necessary to make regular worship of God in community more important in your life. Now, I, I understand you're all sitting here in church. You're all sitting here worshiping. I get it, okay? What would it take to make that a step higher? Maybe it's that you arrive earlier and, and you sit in here and you really prepare your hearts for worship. Maybe you're already getting here early and you're prepared for worship. Um, maybe it is that that you're engaging more with the worship after we leave. I don't know. How can you take worship and, and, and move it up a notch? What would it take for you to move it up a notch? Father, we thank you for the clarity of your story of faithfulness. In spite of our failures, <laughs> there's an optimistic future for us. There's a positive outlook because you forgive us of our sins and you're faithful to us and you have provided opportunities for us to worship you. May we take a positive perspective on our lives. In such a negative world, Lord, this message of an unbelievably neglected book provides such a positive reminder of who you are and that you've got a bigger story that you're telling. And that we need to orient ourselves to what you're doing in that. So remind us of your grace. Remind us of your blessings. And allow us to focus on what you have for us in the future. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.